Amen, amen. Hey, if you would grab a Bible and get with me to the book of uh, uh, Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. If you don't have a Bible, uh, somewhere in a seat in front of you, you'll find a copy. Grab it. Get a copy of God's Word in front of you. We just always want you seeing it as we're reading it and studying it together. Uh, now, I, I said this last week. Uh, my guess is as we, uh, throughout the course of our life, uh, maybe some of us grew up in church and uh, the Ten Commandments were taught to us in, in different ways throughout our life. Uh, others of you, you maybe didn't grow up in church and you have some sense of familiarity, maybe even just with the term, the Ten Commandments, because it's one of the more well-known terms that uh, revolves around the church. But my guess is many of us were taught the Ten Commandments uh, in a very isolated way. What I mean by that is uh, there may be a poster in a Sunday school class or, or uh, you saw them as a list posted somewhere, and, and that was helpful and it was good, and it maybe helped us learn some or all of the Ten Commandments. But uh, the, the, the shortfall of that or, or what it hinders is we don't learn them within the context of how God gave them to his people. And so I want to bring this picture back up in front of you that we've seen over the last couple of weeks because I, I think it's a helpful depiction of how God is delivering the Ten Commandments to his people. Remember, this mass of, of his people have been delivered out of their bondage in Egypt, and they're now at the base of Mount Sinai. And this picture depicts kind of this whole host of people. And God, after he's delivered them out of their bondage and their slavery, he's now, he's laying out for them what it's to look like for them to live as his people. He's making a covenant with them and he's saying, I'm going to be your God. I'm taking you to a land that I've set aside and I've promised to you and you're going to dwell with me as my people. And so the Ten Commandments are not merely just a list of rules that are to be posted on a wall and followed like classroom rules. No, God is getting to the heart of a community that are going to live in a way that loves him and that loves their neighbor. And so uh, last week, we took part one of these Ten Commandments, and we looked at the first four commandments. And the first four of these commandments really unpack what love for God looks like. And we said kind of the, the big idea over last Sunday and this Sunday, kind of one sermon preached over two weeks, is really this. By God's grace, the Ten Commandments, and now follow this picture, they, they like draw a covenantal sketch of a community that loves God and loves people. God is sketching out for his people, here's what love for me and love for your neighbor looks like. And so last week, the, the first four really oriented our heart vertically of what lives lived with love of God in mind looks like. And we made some commitments based on the first four commandments we studied last week, and they were this. I'll have no gods besides God. Related to that, I will not make idols. And we talked about how the human heart is an idle factory and how hard that is and how we need the grace of God to help us with that. I will not misuse the name of the Lord my God and I will commit to a Sabbath rest. Those are the things we looked at last week that orient our heart vertically of what a love for God looks like. Now, this week, we move to commands 5 through 10. And if the first four were really uh, spelling or sketching out what love for God looks like, Commandments 5 through 10 help us understand as we live as God's people, what does love for our neighbor really look like? And so this is where we pick it up today. Now, before I jump in here to commandment number five, I, I want to read all of the rest of the commandments we're going to look at. It's fairly short. 
Uh, and, and then I want to cue us into a time of just quiet prayer between you and the Lord, and I'll tell you why in a moment. But let me read Commandment 5 through 10, Exodus 20, beginning at verse 12, and, and I want us, this to usher us into a time of prayer. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, if I can, I'm going to warn you, as I warned you last week, there will be some conviction as we walk through these. Because none of us, even in reading that list, none of us can stand before the Lord and go, I think I'm okay. And if you think that, wait till the end of the sermon where we unpack the heart that drives these and I'm confident none of us will be able to say that. And so what I want as we begin here today, I want us to imagine that in all of these commandments we're going to look at, we're just staring into the face of Jesus. We desperately are in need of his grace for how we fall short of all of these, amen? And we're desperately in need of his power in order to have any hope of living out these in obedience, amen? And so if you would, just quiet moments of prayer, would you ask the Lord to prepare your heart for what he has to say through this? Just a couple of minutes, be quiet before. Okay, Lord, we are, we are a people who need your grace. So, Lord, as we study this, Lord, would you lavish your grace on us in a way that, Lord, um, um, we've, we fall softly into your loving arms for how far we fall short of these. But, Lord, in the same way as we fall softly into your loving arms, that they propel us forward in obedience. God, please, only you can do that. We pray, use your word in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to continue these commitments as we look at commandment number five. We're making this commitment together as God's covenant people. It's this, I will honor my father and mother. Look back with me at verse 12, Exodus 20, verse 12. It says, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, I think it's really important for us to know that as God begins to focus on now what does love for neighbor look like, look like lived out in our community, he begins in the household. He begins by talking about what a love for mom and what a love for dad looks like. And he commands that we honor. This word honor, it means what we probably understand it to mean. It means we value and it means we revere. So there's to be a reverence for the mother and the father that God and his providence have put into our life. Now, um, I know many of you in the room today can probably go, yeah, I, I've not lived that out perfectly. But in many ways, it, I, 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 there's joy in honoring mom and dad. That God has given me a mom and a dad or a mom or a dad and who uh, have fulfilled out their, their, uh, their commandments from God in an honorable way. And so you hear this and you go, yes, I've fallen short of this, but, but I want this. I want to pursue this. 
But I also want to address some of you in the room. You, you come in the Bible to a commandment like this, and, and it does some, some stuff in your heart because you might have a mom and a dad or a mom or a dad who they, frankly, they didn't fulfill God's commandments that he gave to them in a very honorable way. They weren't a great mom. They weren't a great dad. And so the question can arise in the human heart, if they didn't fulfill what God commanded them to do as mom and dad, do I have to fill what God commands me to do by honoring them? And the short of it is, yes, you do. That God commands us to honor our father and mother. And I recognize with the variety of circumstances in the room today that that can look unique and different in some ways. And we need the help of the Holy Spirit to, to sort out for us what that looks like. But we are commanded to honor our father and mother. And as an act of worship to God and as an act of obedience, we will pursue this. Amen. Now, what does that actually look like? Let me work my way through kind of some different age groups. For you in the room today who are still under your parents' roof, what does it look like for you to honor your father and mother? How, how do you ask God to continue to grow in you a heart to obey your mom and dad and to obey them the first time and to obey them from the heart? Because this is a way that you honor them. What is the way you, what you say to them, say about how you're honoring them? Here's a more convicting one. What is the way, uh, what is your tone? Mom and dad, you're like, come on, preach, pastor, right? What does your tone say about honor? And, I, and I'm, I'm not, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to you as someone who's lived under the roof of mom and dad. I had a great mom and dad. I praise God for them. But my tone lacked honor often. Uh, how about for those of you who've moved out from under the, under the roof of mom and dad? What does it look like for you to continue to pursue this commandment to honor your father and mother? Because I, I want to show you something. This commandment is on the heart of God from cover to cover. In Ephesians chapter 6, we come across these same words in which the Apostle Paul quotes this commandment. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, and that promises uh, a long life in the land that God is giving, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. This is the promise. And so the Apostle Paul picks up this theme. And so that's uh, important for us. We don't age out of this commandment. This isn't something God says do while you're living with mom and dad. And then once you, you know, graduate out from their house, don't worry about it. Honor goes with us. What does honor look like for you who've moved out from under the roof of mom and dad? I'll give you college kids in the room a piece of advice. It means call them. Call them. Moms, can I get an amen to that, right? Just call them, continue to pursue relationship, conversation, uh, know what's going on in their life, share what's going on in your life. And so what's it look like to live out honor in this way? Now, continuing kind of through the stages of life, what does it look like for us to honor father and mother in caring for aging parents? Now, I, 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 I've not personally walked this road, um, but I've been in ministry now long enough to have walked with or have watched many who have walked the road of caring for aging parents. And it's evident to me that it is very, it can be very, very physically tiring and it can be very, very emotionally tiring. And man, I, it, like if you're in the midst of that, can I just look at you and can I give some encouragement? Man, will, will you just pray every morning, God, help us to continue to have grace and strength to fulfill what you've called us to of honoring father and mother. 
I just want to pray that over you. Just, God, give them grace and strength to continue to fulfill this commandment of honoring father and mother. Because God has called his people to live this out. So he says, when you guys get to this land I'm going, when you get to this land I've set aside for you, you as my people, it's to be a place where like when the rest of the nations look in, they're like, look at how those people treat their mom and dad. And for us, as God's covenant people who've been bought and renewed and given new life in Christ, it's to be the same for us. That the rest of the culture would look at the church and go, wow. They would see teenage kids who are like, yeah, mom, okay, if that's what you say. And all the friends are like, what? That's how it's to be. Because God's setting apart a people for himself. And so as he begins love for neighbor, he focuses in on what honor of mom and dad looks like. But he doesn't stop there. He now has a very direct, very punchy, very powerful commandment that he goes to. Commandment number six, verse 13. He says, you shall not murder. The commitment we're making based on this is very simple. It's this, I will not murder. Now, it's probably a little awkward for you to even write this down as a point in a sermon. And if you have never been to this church or you've never had any interaction with Christians, you're like, how jacked up are these people that they need a pastor to tell them don't murder anyone this week, right? There's something we all fundamentally understand that murder is immoral. Even if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're like, yeah, I knew that one coming in here today. And so it's a bit awkward to go like, why do we actually need that as a sermon point? Isn't that pretty self-explanatory? But God, remember something. We're not just after the unpacking of the letter of what these four words mean in action. You know what God's after? He's after the heart and what's going on in the heart. That springs up to murder Jesus in exegeting this commandment or unpacking this commandment in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And Jesus, with that, has just leveled the playing field and exposed all of our hearts in this room. Amen? Because the Lord is after the heart. He understands that murder doesn't just happen, but murder starts as a little seed of anger. And all of us in here can relate to that. Now, I hope this isn't a surprise for you, but I've never outright murdered. But I can think of at least two very specific specific instances this week where the seeds of anger welled up in my heart and murderous daggers were pointed at a neighbor. One of them has to do with these crosswalks in Franklin. So you push the button and the lights start blinking. You know what I'm talking about? And so we're coming up to one of those. And my four-year-old boy is like, I want to push the button. I'm like, you got it, bro. And so he's getting out of the stroller, and there's a car humming down the road. And 
four-year-old boy pushes the button and the guy kind of like slams on his brake and he like gestures to me and he's like, push the button. And I'm like, so we're walking across the road and I'm staring him down. And I'm like, what did you say? He's like, if you want to crawl, you push the button. And I'm like, hey, 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 hey. And Erica's like, brock, 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 brock. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We're going to have a conversation right now. And like, he's starting to go. And, um, and my seven-year-old's like, oh, dad, do you know him? <laughs> he's like, did you know him? Did you want to talk to him? I was like, ah, oh, no, buddy. I, I didn't know him, but I did want to talk to him. And I'm telling y'all, this was within three hours of having stood on this stage, preached on the Ten Commandments, closed the service with how needy we are for Jesus. Beautiful Sunday afternoon, let's go for a walk. And I am there standing in a road in Franklin, just steaming over the functionality of how the crosswalk worked. That's my heart. I don't know about you all. And so we read this and we say, you shall not murder. And we're like, check, got that, and that'll never be a problem. But listen to me now. We look at something like murder and we say, how could you ever get there? How ghastly is that? How ugly is that? There's no way in the world my heart could ever get there. Murder doesn't start there. Murder starts with a little seed of anger. Just a little seed of anger. Lord Jesus, will you crucify the little seeds of anger in our heart? Will you go right there today? Because they're there. And Jesus, we need your grace to help us with that. And so the Lord knows that and he says, it's my covenant people. You're going to go to a land and you're going to be in a land I've set apart for you. And you're going to be a set apart people. And, and in my land, there's not to be murder. But not just the action and the function of it. Jesus helps us understand what God's getting at. The heart of anger that the Lord is crucifying and working out of us. So a love for neighbor looks like honor for father and mother. It looks like a place not marked by murder, the murderous heart of anger. But then the Lord goes on and in verse 14, he's getting to the heart again. And he says this, you shall not commit adultery. Commitment number seven we make amongst one another today is this. I will not commit adultery. I think in the midst of the heaviness of that commandment, there's something beautiful I want us to see. That as God is laying down this covenant with his people of what this is to look like, He's like, my heart is, in my community of people, God's saying, my heart is, in my community of people, is that this is a community that pursues the covenant of marriage that God has called, that God has called them to, and also as a community protects the covenants of marriage that are made within the community. So we're to be a community, we're to be God's people who pursue the covenant we've made with a husband or with a wife, and we're to be a community that helps protect the covenants that have been made. Uh, th that's why Liv was saying, like, as we pray on Tuesday for the marriages in our church, she's like, those of you who aren't married still come to that. Why? Because we're a community that's helping pursue and protect the covenants that God has called us to. And the Lord knows that one of the greatest assailants or enemies to the protection of those covenants is this, 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 this uh, hard reality called adultery. And now I, I, I know, like, in, in a room our size, that... Like, when we come to this commandment, um, 
it can land heavy on some of us. Some of us, some of you sit in the room and you're like, I've committed adultery. And even just being confronted by this commandment in the Word of God today, I know that the, the enemy can come with shameful whispers to try to put you back under a bondage of shame that I'm not interested in laying on you today. In fact, I want you to be freed in the grace of Jesus Christ, and I want to show us some of that here in a moment. And I also recognize that some of you in the room have had, I've sat on the awful side of an adult, adulterous relationship being confessed or found out, and I'm praying as we walk through some of these grace-shaped responses to this commandment that the grace of Jesus would do what only the grace of Jesus can do to minister to your heart. But I do want to talk about those three grace-shaped responses to the seventh commandment. Because this is such a hard topic, especially in the day we live in. Jesus, we need your grace to help us think through this commandment to not commit adultery. The first grace-shaped response to the seventh commandment I want to say is this. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection have the power to forgive all our adulterous hearts. Do we believe it? Did you notice that powerful little three-letter word in there? All? Jesus, once again, unpacks the heart of this commandment in the Sermon on the Mount when he says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And everyone sitting in the crowd with a religious heart, a heart of religiosity, says, Check, I've never done the actions of that. And Jesus says, Wait a minute. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And once again, our hearts are filleted and exposed before a holy God, are they not? And so we come back to this reality that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection have the power to forgive all our adulterous hearts. And when I say all, I mean all. And I, I just want to say to this room here today, If you have found yourself having walked this road before and you're believing the lies of the enemy that says, I believe that the death of Jesus Christ and his blood shed for me is powerful enough to forgive all my sin except that really heinous sin. That is a lie from the pit of hell. When Jesus Christ bore our sins on the cross, he bore all of them. And the moment that we have trusted him in faith and called on his name to believe, we are robed in the righteousness of Christ. Do not buy the lie of the enemy that says you're kind of robed, except for that thing. It's a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell. But now with that reality comes the second grace-shaped response to the seventh commandment. It's this, grace reminds us to protect and pursue the covenant of our marriage and, and to help protect the other marriages of the community. You with me, y'all? Come on, let's just look eyeball to eyeball and say, we are going to get after it to, to, that our marriages look like the fullness of what God wants them to look like. We're going to get after it for that. And let's covenant together that says, and we're also going to live this out as a community of Jesus followers that are going to put wise guardrails in place, that are going to pursue after what God's called us to pursue after, that helps protect the other covenants of marriage within our community. 
And so God says, when you get to this land that you're going, and when the, when the pagan nations look in on it, they're going to look on your marriages and they're going to be like, that husband and that wife, they actually love each other. And they're pursuing after the covenant and they're putting guardrails in place that help protect that covenant. And then this third grace-shaped reminder, or grace-shaped response to the seventh commandment is this. Grace reminds us there's hope for healing when this commandment has been broken. Do you believe it? There genuinely is hope when this has been broken for the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to come in and do and mend what only he can do. And I just want to say, if you feel like your marriage is in a place, like it just, it just looks like a pile of rubble, I'm telling you by the grace of our Lord, he can rebuild that thing to the most beautiful marriage you've, you, you could not even possibly dream up now. And I don't want to just say that from the stage on a Sunday. I want to offer the, the lifelines of help that our church has for that. If you're like, we need that, we need hope, we need healing, soul care at RedeemerBible.Church. Our biblical counselors are always ready to get down in the trenches with you and pursue the hope and the healing that are found by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so... The Lord says, this love for neighbor is honor and father and mother. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, but the Lord's getting at the heart that drives those things. And then he says something that's, again, pretty clear, pretty direct, when he says this in verse 15, the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. And the commitment we're making today is this, I will not steal. And once again, we're kind of like, how much of that really needs unpacking? Seems pretty clear, seems pretty direct. But I want us to understand why, why might God put this in a list of things he's listing out to begin his covenant with his people. I believe he wants us to understand that that which he has entrusted to someone else, we are not to take for ourselves. And in him entrusting it to someone else, for someone to steal or to rob, you're not just taking from that other person. You're ultimately robbing what God has entrusted to them. It's a robbery in some ways against God as well. I remember uh, learning a, a hard lesson about stealing. So I told you earlier, I hope it's no surprise that I've never murdered, but it might be a surprise to tell you I have stolen. And I remember being a 13-year-old on a wrestling trip in Detroit, Michigan, and uh, we were, I was there with friends, and um, we had a bright idea, and teenagers in the room, this is stupid, it's foolish, and I, I, I faced pain and punishment because of it, so don't hear this and go, that's a good idea, I should do that, my pastor did that, and it was okay, no, it was stupid and foolish, and don't do it. But we had 13-year-old wrestlers in a hotel. We had the bright idea. You know, you know what we want? we want? We want to go around and we want to take the room numbers that represent our football numbers because that'd be cool to have hanging on our door at home. So we went through the hotel and we took off the different hotel room numbers. And I took my number and I came home and I posted it on my bedroom door. And mom and dad weren't on that trip, but mom and dad walked down the hallway and they saw a number posted on a bedroom door that clearly looked like it was from a Hilton or Hampton or wherever we were staying. And they said, what's this? And I said, it's the number four. And they said, well, we see that. Where'd you get it? Well, I took it off the wall at the hotel. So let me get this straight. You stole 
the hotel's property. Well, I wouldn't say it like that. Well, how would you say it? And from there, my parents began to unpack for me the heart of not only stealing, but defacing property. And I remember in my 13-year-old heart, I remember uh, uh, exhorting back to them the argument that surely a multi-million dollar hotel chain is not going to miss one hotel room number on their wall, of which my dad was not convinced by the argument. I didn't let on to it at the time, but my heart was deeply convicted by my parents unpacking that I had, in fact, just stolen what was not rightfully mine. How does love for people drive us toward a life as givers and not takers? Uh, this gets played out in, in unique ways, right? People take stuff from your company all the time, and, and there's no, like, no one ever really does anything about it, but it's also not right to do, and, and everyone thinks, oh, who really cares that, like, this company's going to miss these little things? Are you taking what is not rightfully yours? How do you, how do you live out being a giver and not a taker? Our country puts laws in place that guide the way taxes are to work. And, and, and when, when, when you take shortcuts, immoral shortcuts, dishonest shortcuts that withhold what our country's tax laws say our country is rightfully due, what does it say about how you're living out a love for neighbor and what God commands here? And I know we, we've heard all the argument, but our country doesn't deserve my money. Let's, we don't make those laws. Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And so what does this look like lived out in a way where God would look at his covenant people and he says, yes, that's what's to mark my covenant people. Not, not takers, not stealers, but those who are generous givers. And then he goes on with another direct commandment here. Commandment number nine, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Here's the commitment we're making on that. I will not lie. I will not lie. And so all of this is built around what does love for neighbor looks like. In the New Testament, there's a chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's often referred to as the love chapter. And one of the things, as the love is being described and unpacked for us, it says, love rejoices or delights in the, in the truth. So love rejoices in the truth. And so our love for neighbor rejoices in the truth. And again, this is another one that like you didn't need to come to church today to find, oh, I shouldn't lie? I didn't know that. You didn't need to come to church today to understand that. So what is it about the human heart that is so prone to lie? I, I think often lying comes into play when there's retaliation or self-protection. Someone has done something against us, and we know if we lob a little lie out about their character and retaliation, we know the problems that can create for them. Or we've done something that we don't want found out and so we build a fortress of faulty blocks of lies around us to protect ourselves. But we all know how that fortress comes crashing down over time, right? And so, the Lord says, no, not lying, but we're to be a people that speak the truth in love. 
In the book of Ephesians, as Paul is unpacking how the body is to be built up, he says this, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We are to be people who speak the truth in love. And and some of you in the room, you need to hear the speak the truth part. Because you can shy away and never be willing to boldly and courageously say what needs to be said. And And you need God's help. Okay, Lord, help me speak the truth. Others of us in the room, you have no problem speaking the truth. You're like, truth, capital T, here it is. You need to hear it. You need to hear what does it look like to speak the truth in in love. And so the community of Jesus fathers were to be a place marked with truth and love. We, we, We will not lie because love rejoices in the truth. And now finally, this 10th commandment. And if we need help understanding or we need to see how God is interested in the heart, this one gets at the heart. He says, you shall not covet. And then he lists a variety of things. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Our 10th commitment we're making over the course of these two weeks, I will not covet. I will not covet. To covet means to sinfully desire what God has entrusted to someone else. To sinfully desire what God has entrusted to someone else. Trevin Wax, who wrote an article on the Gospel Coalition website about this, he says it like this, Instead of desiring our neighbor's good, we desire their goods for ourselves. And let let me tell you all something. I don't think this will be a surprise to us. You see this in the human heart from the time we're this big, do you not? Take, one of your, take a kid, take a little kid out on a special date, let them buy a toy. They're pumped for their toy. They come back and they show their toy off to their brothers and sisters. Now take a brother or sister out on a special date right after that. Let them buy a toy. That brother or sister comes back, shows off their new toy. Kid number one throws his toy down and says, I want that toy. And you say, what's wrong with your toy? Nothing. I just want theirs. But it's not just a heart problem of a five-year-old. It's a heart problem of a 15-year-old. Your son or daughter was totally fine with the iPhone 4 SQ796 until they went to school and their friends all have the iPhone 7 S color whatever. And now their phone's junk. It's junk. Well, does it work the same way it did yesterday? Well, yes, but it's junk. This thing's stupid. You know what Carly has? The iPhone 7 Q49. I want that. But it's not just the problem of a 5 and a 15, 25-year-old young man or young woman, a couple years out of college, uh, their college friends, career paths going a little quicker, a little smoother, raise, raise, more money, more money, leads to a pretty nice car. They go to dinner, they're hanging out, pretty nice car now that my friend's driving. You leave with a little bit of, ugh. Next dinner, friend says, we just put an offer in on a house. And now all of a sudden, genuine friends, the one friend's walking away like what I used to rejoice in in the winds of that person. I'm like, I can't believe there's part of my heart that's like, I don't even want them to get that house. We know this is the reality of the human heart, right? Like if you're going to leave me all up here and say your heart's not like that at times, come on. Lord, would you replace a heart of covetousness with a heart of gratefulness? 
Lord, would you do such a work in us that we can walk through our friend's new beautiful home, big, beautiful, awesome home, and walk back into our one-bedroom apartment and say, thank you, Lord. Lord, would you do such a work in us that we can sit in our brother's brand new 2022 Ford Mustang and go for a ride and close our creaky door to our 2002 Ford Focus and say, thank you, Lord. Only God can do that, right? But this gets at the heart of what we were singing earlier. Christ is enough for me. It's easy to sing it on a Sunday. But when I, and I'm like you, I struggle with this just as much as you do. I've already told you, when I, I got a pretty busy road that we live on. When I, say a beautiful, when I see a beautiful cream Ford F-150 Limited drive down that road, I say, Lord, please, one day. One day I will trade you this 2007 Pilot for one of the, I, my heart's just like you in some way. When those things arise, let us say, Lord, will you replace my covetous heart with a grateful heart. Because you are enough. It doesn't matter if I have that. It doesn't matter if I, you are enough. Amen? Now, um, I, band's going to come out, but, I, but I, I want us to, I want to close with something that happens right after God gives the beginning of this covenant of these commands. Because it's really important that we see what happens right after God says these things. Verse 18, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were what? What's the emotion described? The people were what? They're afraid and trembled and they stood where? They stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. This is really important for us to understand. When a holy God comes down and meets with a sinful, broken people, it is an awesome thing. It is an awe-inducing and it is a fear-inducing reality and the people are afraid and they stand off at a distance and they say, Moses, you mediate between a holy God and between us sinful, broken people. Because when a holy God confronts a sinful people, it, it leads to a fear and we see that through all, all the Bible. Now look at what Moses says as he mediates. Look at what he says in verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not what? Do not fear. But then he goes on to say this, for God has come to test you that the, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Think about the irony of what Moses says there. Do not fear. God has come before you that you might fear. What? What is this all about? This, I believe, folks, is about the heart of the gospel message. That broken, sinful people can find a way to their holy, perfect creator only through a mediating Savior coming on our behalf. And a greater Moses comes later, and his name is Jesus, and he is our mediating Savior. 
through his work on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, he pays the penalty for our sin, as we've already said. The moment we believed, we are robed in the righteousness of Christ, and we can now approach the throne with freedom. Amen? Do not fear. That's the do not fear part of the gospel. We are ushered in and welcomed in as sons and daughters into the presence of our holy God. Amen. But as we come into the presence of a holy God, the Bible talks all from cover to cover that we are to increase in the fear of the Lord. That there's a reverence for the holiness of God. There's a fear he works in our heart in such a way that it leads to what it says here is that we would not sin, that we would grow in holiness. This is the beauty of the gospel message. Jesus has made a way and we come into the presence of God with no fear. His wrath will no longer befall on us. And at the same time as we find ourselves in his presence, we long for a greater fear of the Lord that drives us to greater holiness. Amen? That's the full picture. How great is our God? And so, as we close and as we sing, uh, just stand with me. As our hearts have been confronted by these Ten Commandments, by the heart of God that drives them, by the reality, as we said at the beginning, that none of us can read through these and say, I think I'm good. But all of us in reading these say how desperately we need Jesus to come save us. And so, Lord, Thank you that you've saved us by your grace through faith. Thank you that you've made our way to a holy God. And thank you that as we come before the holiness of our God, our reverence and fear only increases. That drives us to worshipful obedience for his glory. Amen. So let's sing that reality as we.